This is Including You, the new series from Lead at Any Level. Including You features stories from chief diversity officers and other executives who are creating inclusive cultures in their organizations. Our goal is to show what's working in companies just like yours, to give you the tools you need to keep pushing for progress in your own workplace. We want to create belonging and opportunity for everyone, including you. And now here's your host, Amy C. Wanninger. Welcome back to Including You. I'm your host, Amy C. Wanninger, the Inclusion Catalyst. My guest today is Malcolm Glenn. He's the founder of MG Equity Consulting, a boutique virtual consulting firm committed to using equitable strategies as a means to the most important end, helping communities thrive. Malcolm, welcome to the show. Thank you, Amy. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to talk to you. I always enjoy talking to other practitioners, other consultants, other people in the space about what they're seeing out in the world. And I know, like me, you had a corporate background before you started your own firm. Can you talk a little bit about how your corporate experience has informed the work that you do today? Amy, it's a great question. And to be quite frank, I think my corporate experience is really the foundation for the work that I do now. I spent a number of years in corporate spaces, really trying to drive equity in all sorts of different ways into the foundation of those companies as well, whether it was in terms of their internal teams, how they were hiring, recruiting and retaining employees, and or how they were embedding equity in their external facing work as well, their policies, their products, all of the stuff that was being consumed by customers. And I, in a lot of ways, I think was really successful. In a lot of ways, I think uh, I ran into a whole host of challenges. And it's navigating those corporate spaces that really helped inform the work that I do today. So most of my clients are corporate clients, not all of them, but I'd say the majority of my clients are corporate clients. And I really draw upon the strategies that I utilize in the corporate space to think about how to advise my clients today, how to find the right internal advocates in your company to push for the change that you're looking for, how to make the business case around why that work is important and how to make sure that that business case is rooted in something that's long-term and sustainable, how to make sure that you're getting the right buy-in from the right senior leaders. Uh, I I love the notion of grassroots strategies, but when there's a top-down buy-in as well, that can make something really powerful and really sustainable in the long-term. So my corporate background really informs in a whole host of ways everything I do today. And I think that's part of the reason I've spent so much time talking and advising corporations in the course of my practice now. I love what you said about they need a a why or they need a business case that's deep and and sustainable. There's so much pushback right now around DNI and in various states, in some cases, they're even saying you can't use these words anymore. I don't understand how that's legal, but I'm not a lawyer. Um, But I think this notion of the why for the organization has to be bigger because they're going to encounter pushback and the why that they have has to be bigger than all the pushback they're going to get. And so what are some of the, some of the driving forces behind this that you're seeing with your clients? And do you agree? First, Amy, I appreciate you acknowledging the macro situation we're in right now, where there is just frankly an onslaught from various legislative bodies, from various political actors across the country that are really attacking diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts. And it has made that business case especially challenging. We all have seen some of the especially prominent fights where 
political actors have taken their ire to corporations. And in some ways, those corporations have folded. In other ways, those corporations have really stood strong and said that this is something that we believe in. So when it comes to that business case, I think you have to think about something that is going to really result in some value proposition for the bottom line for the business. For example, one of the corporations where I used to work was Uber. I spent about four and a half years working at the company. I was on a, a number of different policy teams. And in large part, I led the company's work around accessibility and underserved communities. And as I went out and talked to various community stakeholders about what the platform could be doing better, where we were doing well, one thing that they regularly told me was, you are not sufficiently serving the needs of people with disabilities. And as I interrogated what exactly that meant, whether that was for people who are blind and have low vision, people who are deaf or hard of hearing, people who use wheelchairs or all other sorts of people, it became clear that among other things, we did not have an, enough wheelchair accessible vehicles on the platform. So that was the problem. It was a very clear problem to me. If you were a wheelchair user, particularly a power wheelchair user, in most parts of the country, it was very hard to get an Uber. And so I went back to the business and I said, this is a very clear problem. How can we solve this? I was met with a whole host of responses. This is going to be really costly. Right? We have our drivers who are driving on their own vehicles, and most drivers don't own wheelchair accessible vehicles. Uh, this is a small market, therefore, it's going to be really hard to make this case as to why this is going to affect the bottom line for a company that at the time was pre-IPO, had not yet proved itself to be profitable. And so what I said was, okay, are there other reasons why this would be a worthwhile investment? We have major competitors in the rideshare space. If we can show that we're serving the needs of this community in a way that our competitors are not, we're going to engender some brand loyalty. They're going to stick with the business, and that's going to serve us well in the long term. If this is a costly investment, is there a way that we can subsidize this investment? For example, I know that governments also really struggle to serve the needs of people with disabilities through things like paratransit, which uh, oftentimes don't work particularly well for the intended audience. Can we actually have government subsidize using Uber to serve the needs of paratransit users? So in situation, customers have a better experience, governments save money, they don't have to bear the cost themselves, and we get some of the money back that we're investing in putting these vehicles on the platform. And importantly, it wasn't just me making this pitch, right? I said, I need to find advocates internally who are well positioned to say why this is the right course of action. And so what I did is I looked at all of my cross-functional stakeholders, and it actually ended up being, amongst other people, uh, a group of lawyers that were the real advocates. And oftentimes you think about lawyers, particularly in corporate settings, as sort of the blockers, the folks who say, no, we don't want to do this. Let's be conservative. Let's be risk averse. But what I realized was these lawyers could look to all of our potential lawsuit risks and say, hey, if we're sued by X, Y, and Z organizations, it's going to cost this much money. If we invest in putting the vehicles that are accessible on the platform, it's going to cost orders of magnitude less. And that was a very clear value proposition for the company. We're not going to get sued. We're not going to take the brand hit. It's going to cost us a whole less, a lot less money. Oh, and by the way, we're actually going to be providing a better service for customers who historically have not had access to high quality accessible transportation. It was a series of conversations over a course of months and frankly years that got us to the point where we actually made that investment. But by finding the right advocates internally, by making that business case grounded in something that everyone could understand and showing how this was going to set us apart from our competitors in a way that wasn't going to break the bank over the long term, 
we were able to make these investments and ultimately they've worked out really well. This example that you shared is so impactful because it's not only the business case for diversity, equity, and inclusion. It's also just a good business case. It occurs to me that there are so many wins out there sitting there waiting to be found by people who would look for them, who would gain the right coalition. How do you help your clients, individuals, or companies find the right coalition of support within an organization? Because I know that's a big piece of your work. I love the fact that you use the word coalition, because I think that is so core to how I approach this work. It is really about building a coalition, an internal coalition as a means of then serving a host of external coalitions. And so I think it starts with looking at your business, taking an honest, sober look at your business and being really open with yourself and with your colleagues around where the gaps are. Where are we not doing a good job? And one of the easiest ways to actually go about doing that is to look at the broader context in which your business sits. So if I look at the Uber example, again, I didn't even have to look particularly closely at my company in particular to recognize that transportation for a whole host of communities has historically been deeply inequitable. And Uber tried to improve in a whole host of ways around those inequities, but it wasn't going to fundamentally change them and certainly not going to do so overnight. And so I always ask folks to step back. We have work in education. Look at the historic ways in which certain people have had substandard access to education while their peers have had high quality educational options. If you work in advertising, think about the historic ways in which some people have absolutely not been reflected either in ads themselves or in the determining factors as to who made ads and who was reflected in ads. Think about where your business has gone, where your business is, and who might not have a voice in that space. Once you start to determine, okay, these are the folks that don't have an opportunity, you've got to start to engage in some outreach. My background is largely in underpinning a lot of the work I've done, community engagement and community building. And so you got to go out and find voices from those communities. And you need to have honest conversations with them about the things that you're doing well, and oftentimes the things that you're not doing well. And you have to be okay hearing criticism and feedback as to how you might improve. Once you hear that feedback, once you start to let folks know that you're in these conversations as a means of starting to develop a long-term relationship, I think you take that feedback and you deliver it to folks in the business in a way that's going to help them understand where their pitfalls are, where their gaps are, and where they might need to improve. Then you go back to your internal coalition and you determine, okay, where is the most effective way for us to make this business case? Not just for why inclusion is important, but to the point you just made, why this is actually going to be good for all aspects of the business. Serving communities that have historically been excluded is going to be good for shareholders. It's going to be good for C-suite folks. It's going to be good for contractors. It's going to be good for entry-level folks all the way up to middle management. Thinking about how this is going to be foundationally important for the business writ large, as well as those communities is I think the key point. It's the key point I try to advise my clients on. Now, it's not always easy. It takes real rigor around looking at your business, asking yourself tough questions and coming up with real sober, honest answers. But I try to help my clients do that. And when they get to the point of having asked and answered those questions, that's when they're then able to really connect some of these equity and inclusion initiatives to something that's also going to serve the business in the long term. I want to thank you for saying, get out and talk to the community, get out and talk to your customers. Because I do a, a talk on networking, and it's the talk that I do the most often. And I always ask people, who's a customer that you have a good relationship with? 
And a lot of times people will push back and say, look, I work in HR, or I work in tech, or I work in this. I'm not customer facing. I don't need customer relationships. And I can see you smiling as I say that because that's not true. But it really is imperative that people get out of their own four walls and go talk to real live customers so they know where does their organization sit in the marketplace? Why do people choose them or not choose them relative to their competitors? What are the things that they're known for outside of their own building? And how can that inform the decisions they make going forward? And I always say, if you're in HR, for example, and you're the only person in HR that's going out and talking to customers, you're going to be the highest performing HR person in your department because there's just no substitute for getting out there and talking to people. I think that's such a great point. Everyone has a responsibility to understand, not theoretically, not through game of telephone, but directly in a real visceral sense, what various folks in the community, what various different customers think, feel, and understand about your brand or your products. I really have um, come to believe in and really love this mantra um, that I've heard from folks who I've worked with in some of my community building. Um, And the mantra is nothing about us without us. And I just love that because I think it really speaks to this notion of engaging with your external communities, engaging with your customers. We can't expect you to develop something that's going to serve us best if you're not talking to us. And if you look at it from the corporate side, I can't expect to channel what is important to various people out of the world if I'm not having real conversations with them. And I think we can all see all sorts of examples from history and quite frankly, the present as well, of products and innovations that haven't engaged with customers and all of the ways in which they've been inequitable or lacked in terms of inclusivity. And just going out, having those conversations, not having them to check the box, but then really considering, honoring, and taking into account that feedback is just so vital. And it really doesn't matter what industry you're in. It doesn't matter what space you're in. If you have customers, you need to be out there having conversations with your customers, as well as customers from a diversity of different communities. Yes. And even organizations that think that they don't have customers, not-for-profits, for example, there's somebody who's keeping your lights on. It might be donors, it might be sponsors, it might be the community members that you serve, it might be from a a government standpoint, it's your constituents or the people that voted you in. But if you're not out there talking to people, you're really missing the mark. I wanted to ask you, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I think you're right that this is just not a corporate imperative. If you're a nonprofit organization, the, the likelihood is that you're doing something to serve a community. So are you thinking about all of the different folks within that community and how certain policies might affect some folks in positive ways and other folks in in negative ways? Are you thinking about the intersectionality of those communities that you're serving and making sure that everything that you're putting out into the world is thoughtful um, in regards to those various needs? I, I think it's just, it's really important and I appreciate you making that point. This is not just a corporate consideration. This is a consideration for anyone who's external facing in the nature of what their organization does. Thank you for that. What are some of the things that you're seeing, some of the trends that you're seeing right now in DEI with your clients? I know you're working in some pretty progressive companies, some pretty progressive spaces in the tech industry, for example. They tend to be on the cutting edge of a lot of things relative to other industries. Can you talk a little bit about what's bubbling up in those spaces that you think will make the ripples out into other industries? Amy, it's a great question. And I think we're 
at a little bit of a crossroads. And if I'm being honest, I think we've been at this crossroads for a while. I think the last few years, particularly in the aftermath of the social justice protests of 2020, in the aftermath of the murder of George Floyd, has started to result in what has felt like a little bit of a shift in the ways that organizations are approaching DEI. At the very least, rhetorically, this has become a greater point of focus. And I think that has absolutely been a good thing. But it has felt like there has been a limit to that progress. There's been a limit to some of that rhetoric and even for some of the organizations that are going further, the practical work that they're doing. For me, it has felt like too often that focus on DEI has seen DEI as an end unto itself. And by that, getting folks in the organization is enough to check the box. Getting folks who have, have historically not been represented in your organization in the door has been enough to acknowledge the good work that you've done and feel good about it. I always say DEI doesn't stop at the water's edge that is getting folks into the organization. You then have to translate that into what we've been talking about today, output. So it's really a means to an end. And the end is that more inclusive and equitable set of outcomes for communities. Some organizations are understanding that imperative, but still too many don't fully recognize how important that is. And I think part of that has to do with the fact that in an era of layoffs and tightening budgets and increased interest rates, which is affecting everyone in the corporate space, sometimes the first set of priorities to get deprioritized are those DEI priorities. And when that happens, it becomes that much harder for that DEI work to then translate into external facing work. So the last couple of years, I think, have seen a renewed focus or in some ways a brand new focus on DEI in, in organizational spaces. But even amongst tech companies, and a number of my clients are tech companies, the last couple of months um, have really, uh, I think, really called into question how important that work is and have made it that much harder to then translate internal DEI focuses into external ones. Now, some organizations are doing it. Some organizations are not yet ready to do it. But I think the more we continue to make DEI writ large a focus, the more we're going to see organizations, particularly those especially progressive ones, start to understand the imperative of external facing inclusion and equity work as well. Yeah, I think the companies that get this right right now are going to be the ones that recover the most quickly when, as the current economic situation starts to resolve. I think they're going to win this battle for talent that we're seeing. We're seeing historic unemployment. Even with the tech layoffs, we're seeing historic unemployment numbers. And so it's just, it's fascinating to me to watch and disappointing to watch DEI get cut, learning and development get cut, investment in people get cut. And the same people who five years ago were saying, what do you mean I have to say thank you? I pay these people (laughs) are now mad about what they're calling quiet quitting, which is people only doing their job (laughs) that they're getting paid for. I'm like, you don't get it both ways. You you don't get to complain that you have to say thank you and complain that people aren't putting in discretionary effort. I think that's such a great point. I think one of the things that has been really illuminating for me over the course of my corporate career is how short-sighted senior corporate leaders can be. And I think what you've just talked about is a perfect example of that. Are we thinking just about our next earnings report? Are we thinking about the stock price today, tomorrow, next week? Or are we thinking about this as a long-term investment, learning and development? There are fewer, more valuable, longer-term investments. Diversity, equity, and inclusion work, as we've talked about. Very few long-term investments. And so some of the companies that have engaged in these layoffs 
have seen this very short-term bump in their stock price. And a lot of investors are applauding it and saying that was the right move to lay off X thousands numbers of employees. But what does that mean for long-term abilities to recruit? What does that mean for attrition for the employees who stuck around? What does that mean, again, to your point, when the economic situation changes? I think you're exactly right. As you invest in those long-term efforts, when it's a little bit more uncomfortable today, I think you're going to reap the benefits down the line. And it is my hope that more and more companies understand that and more and more companies stay the course and recognize the importance of continuing to take these things like learning and development, like diversity, equity, and inclusion as seriously as they should be. I want to go back to another point you made about recruiting and diversity and inclusion work doesn't stop when you've recruited the right number of people, when when you've reached representation internally, right? That's not the end. And the reason this is something that as you were saying it, my, I was, my heart was fluttering because (laughs) I'm always telling my clients, right? People come to people like us and they say, we want to recruit more diverse talent. This is the problem statement that a lot of companies come to people like us with. We would like to recruit more diverse talent. And my question is, how are you retaining the talent that you have right now? And that question always knocks people back a little bit because they expect me to say, you need to start recruiting at HBCUs or you need to do an outreach campaign for women in tech or whatever. But the question really is, how are you retaining the people you have? Because If you can't retain these people, you might as well just throw that money into a paper shredder. It's expensive to recruit. It's time consuming to recruit. And if your turnover numbers increase as a result of the recruiting you're doing, because let's face it, if you plant flowers in the wrong soil, the flowers die. We don't need to keep shelling out more money for new plants. We need to tend the soil that we've got as we're putting the plants in. And I'm curious how much of your work is focused on retention versus engagement versus recruiting? Because there seems to be a a disconnect in my experience with what people ask for and what they actually need. That is such a great question because I think you're right. I think if you were to ask your sort of prototypical corporate leader who is hoping to gain some greater insight into their DEI work, recruiting might be the first word out of their mouths. And that's not to say that recruiting is not important, of course, But I think you're right. Oftentimes, a disproportionate focus on recruiting comes at the expense of that imperative around retention. And this came up recently for one of my clients. I was talking to, within the scope of the project that I was doing for them, I was interviewing a number of employees, volunteered to talk to me about things that they were seeing that were good and bad at that organization in regards to DEI. And a number of employees said almost exactly what you said. We are spending so much time on recruiting that it's coming at the expense of retention, almost word for word, as you just outlined. And when I when I read this back to the senior leaders at the organization, for a lot of them, this was the first time they recognized that this might be the case. It was a a sort of shocking light bulb moment for them. And I said, this is not uncommon. In fact, this is quite logical that if you are not, as you said, tending to the flowers that are already there, it's going to become really hard to go out and A, have a diverse workforce in its own right, but B, continue to draw from a whole host of historically excluded communities. And so most of my focus is on engagement and retention. I certainly help organizations think about recruitment, but a lot of times organizations don't even realize recruitment is not foundational issue number one. And it's something we should consider. It's something we should think about in the scope of our plans. But the more we recognize that there's lots that needs to be done 
to allow for growth and development for the folks who are here. There's lots that we need to do to continue to engage in outreach with communities in regards to who we're serving from an external perspective. That can actually really bolster and solidify DEI efforts in a robust way. And then sometimes the recruiting efforts just fall into place. As you said, we know some of the tactics that work in terms of recruiting. Are you going to universities that are disproportionately uh, representative of those communities? Are you thinking about the longer term pipeline and making investments at a pre-university level? We're all aware of those tactics. A lot of organizations are engaging in those tactics. Perhaps one of those reasons that those tactics don't seem to be bearing as much fruit as we would like is because we're spending so much time on them that we're not thinking about the retention and engagement piece. And so I appreciate you bringing that up because that's core to how I advise clients. And frankly, I think it's core to how any organization can really be thoughtful around effective DEI efforts. And let's not forget, people talk. (laughs) If somebody is super happy in your organization, their friends and family are going to know about it. And if someone's not happy in your organization, their friends and family are going to know about it. And it's not that big a world. And in a lot of cities, especially companies that are recruiting regionally or locally, it doesn't take that long for word to get out about, is this a good place for me and people like me? It's a pretty quick feedback loop, right? From within the corporation to to outside the corporation. Malcolm, I am so grateful for your time today. And I am so glad uh, just to hear what's going on in your world. We're in different parts of the country. We're serving different kinds of clients. But it's so nice to know that the experience is very similar, that the problems don't change that much. And I'm so glad that you're out here doing this work and that you're moving your clients forward and helping them serve their communities better. Thank you. Thank you, Amy. I am so appreciative of the work that you do. I'm so appreciative that you've invited me on today. And thank you for continuing to fight this important fight. If you've enjoyed this episode, follow Lead at any level on LinkedIn and YouTube. Then join us for Including You video simulcast every Thursday at noon Eastern. Including You can also be enjoyed each week as part of the Living Corporate Audio Podcast Series, available on all major podcast platforms. Learn more at living-corporate.com. Including You is brought to you in part by Lead at Any Level, a boutique training and consulting firm improving employee engagement and retention for companies that promote from within. Lead at Any Level. Leaders can be anywhere and should be everywhere. Learn more at leadatanylevel.com. Lead at Any Level and its logo are registered trademarks of Lead at Any Level LLC. The views and opinions of guests on our show do not necessarily reflect the positions of Lead at Any Level, Living Corporate, or the sponsors of Including You. That's it for this week's episode of Including You. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to leave us a review or a comment or ask a question of our guests. Be sure to join me next week when my guest will be Jason H. Hawkins, who is in supplier diversity at George Mason University.